Blog Talk Radio. of the Appleseed Program, which is sponsored by the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. The Revolutionary War Veterans Association is dedicated to bringing you the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States today. At the same time, giving you a little bit of understanding about the history of this nation, about the men and women who gathered together on April 19, 1775, the date that our nation began. <clears throat> We've got a great show for you guys tonight. Uh, we're going to be doing the uh, second strike in the, of the match in just a little while. We, uh, we've had the first strike on several times now. And uh, and I invite everybody to, uh, anybody who would like to volunteer to do the uh, any of the strikes of the match store to uh, give me a send me a PM and uh, we'll get you set up and scheduled to do it. We'd like to have uh, uh, we'd like to have uh, several of the strike stories told by folks. <clears throat> All right. Uh, as always, we'll start off with the events, the upcoming events for this month, where uh, we just finished up the first weekend in December and. Uh, We've still got a nice full month left of apple seeds across the nation. I want to remind you that uh, that we have the Winter Seed Project, <clears throat> which is 
making sure that uh, during the the winter months, which traditionally we've, we've kind of slowed down uh, during the winter months, and uh, and we haven't uh, done as many apple seeds across the nation, and we're trying to uh, we're trying to change that. We'll make sure that we're taking full advantage of the winter months and uh, running events, even in the cold, the rain, snow, sleet, etc. If you go to one of these events, if you participate at one of these apple seed events, and uh, you shoot your shoot to rifleman standards in inclement weather, then uh, we've actually struck a specific patch for that called the winter seed patch, and uh, I believe it has uh, some ice crystals hanging off of it. So you'll be uh, you'll be eligible to sport that patch if you do so. But the main thing is to it's to make folks understand that uh, in the mission that we have, that there is no time for letting down. There's no time for putting the engine in neutral. We're going to have to take advantage of every moment that we can. Every every weekend that we can get out and do an event, we need to be taking advantage of it. Uh, we should be speeding up, not slowing down, because our mission is an important one. And that's making sure that we're getting to every person that we can reach, getting them out of their homes, getting them off their couches, getting them involved in making sure that the freedoms and the liberties that this nation affords them are safeguarded. And the way you do that is by being informed. And making sure that they understand that we have a debt to pay to those who have come before us. We've got a, a huge debt to pay to those who have come before us. And how can we repay this debt? And the answer is it's not going to be very easy because uh, the people that we owe most have already perished. The people that we owe most who have come before us and sacrificed, and many times all uh, all that they have, their fortunes, their lives, that uh, it's going to be hard to make that debt even. What we can do to help balance out the skills is to honor them. And the way you honor someone is to remember them. And we do that every single weekend at some location uh, across the United States. At some location within a reasonable driving distance to you every single weekend of the year. Uh, The only weekend I think that we'll be missing this year is December 25th. And uh, that's kind of an obvious reason. I think we could probably still have some somewhere, but uh, it might be a hard sell. Other than that, every other weekend you'll find us somewhere uh, within reasonable driving distance. When I say reasonable driving distance, I mean, you know, within three or 400 miles. That's a, that's a reasonable amount to drive. <clears throat> All right, so to get to an Appleseed event, get some information about it, and get some more information about what we do, you can go to rwva.org. RWVA.org. That's our home page. On the home page, you'll see a, uh, a list of tabs across the top. And uh, the second from the left over says Appleseed. You put your cursor on that, you'll get a drop down menu. And the second listing there on the drop down menu is Schedule. Actually, it's the first listing on the drop down menu. It's Schedule. You click on that, it'll take you to the page I'm about to read from. 
Now, on this page, we have the upcoming events listed. We'll have the dates, and uh, they'll be listed by the cities. We'll have the, the name of the city, then the state, and then the date. <coughs> you look along this uh, list, and you find a location that you want to go to. And then go ahead and pre-register for the event. Now we have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, categories that are free, and uh, you really should be taking advantage of those. We have got, uh, as always, we have uh, uh, women and children under 21 free. We have uh, uh, we have law enforcement, active duty guard and reserve. And veterans, all these folks uh, will attend attend an Appleseed event free. So make sure you're taking advantage of that. And even if, if you are, we still would like for you to pre-register. And here's why: we, I told you, we have events going all across the United States every weekend. That's a lot of work. A lot of folks having to get uh, airline tickets and hotel reservations. Make sure that the correct amount of supplies are shipped out for the number of folks who are attending. Make sure that we have a good instructor-to-student ratio at the events. And the way we know how many instructors we need is by looking at the number of folks who have pre-registered. So make sure that you pre-register for the event. When you do that, you go to rwva.org, look at the tabs, click on Schedule, which is under the Appleseed tab. Go to the events that you would like to attend. There's going to be two hot links to the right of that. One says information. This is the event information page, the EIP. This will give you all of the information for that particular event on that specific day. Once you've decided uh, on the event you want to attend, just to the right of the uh, information link is a register link. That takes you to the registration page, uh, which is handled for us by Eventbrite, which is a third-party uh, registration software. And uh, you can pre-register for the event. Now, going to an Appleseed event used to be uh, used to be really easy. You just showed up, and uh, you got a place on the line. Now, there are some places you could probably still do that, uh, there are some places, such as here in Davila, uh, where we have a really huge uh, capacity. You can probably still get away with that. Nonetheless, we still need you to pre-register so we'll know how many instructors uh, to have on hand. Because we like to have a good, uh, we like to have a good instructor to student ratio. So to make sure you have a place on the line, pre-register. It helps you. It helps us. Uh, and it's a very easy thing to do. You can also uh, uh, make uh, uh, donations uh, at the Eventbrite location, and you can uh, register for uh, membership in the RWVA. All right, well, let's get started. Uh, the uh, first, the next uh, upcoming weekend is December 11th and 12th. That begins in Buckeye, Arizona followed by Piru, California, San Luis Obispo, California, Corona, California, Eureka, California, St. Augustine, Florida, Waco, Georgia, Lewiston, Idaho, Rochester, Indiana, 
Ashland, Kentucky, Sherburn, Louisiana, Harvard, Massachusetts, Annapolis, Maryland, December 11th and 12th is sold out. Like I said, the uh, a lot of locations are selling out. So if you wait to the last minute, there's a good chance that uh, you might uh, end up walking up there and then uh, not being able to get a place online instead just uh, having to peel potatoes. So make sure that you pre-register. That same weekend, December 11th and 12th, is Hinkley, Minnesota, Como, Mississippi, Billings, Montana, Las Cruces, New Mexico, December 11th and 12th is a ladies-only event. Calverton, New York, December 11th and 12th. Eagle Creek, Oregon, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, San Angelo, Texas, College Station, Texas, Yakima, Washington, Stinson, West Virginia, that takes us to the weekend of December 18th and 19th, which begins in Sierra Vista, Arizona followed by Azusa, California, Mariposa, California, Sacramento, California, Mayaca City, Florida, which is the Rocky Creek Ranch location, Rancher, North Carolina, North Fayetteville, North Carolina, Boulder City, Nevada, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Davila, Texas, Hubertus, Wisconsin, Saturday, December 18th, is a one-day event, and that's uh, taking place on Saturday, December 18th in Hubertus, Wisconsin. That takes us to the second weekend in January. I said we had one every weekend except for the 25th this year, and that's true. For this coming year, uh, the uh, January 1st weekend, uh, we've started on the January 8th and 9th instead of the 1st. And that weekend, the 8th and 9th, begins in Piru, California, followed by Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Indianapolis, Indiana, Saturday, January 8th is a one-day event. Annapolis, Maryland, Las Vegas, Nevada, Dallas, Texas, which is the uh, Quail Creek Range, January 8th and 9th. Simpson, West Virginia, that takes us to the weekend of the 15th and 16th, which begins in Corona, California, followed by Sacramento, California, Rainbow, California, New Smyrna Beach, Florida, Alamogordo, New Mexico, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Gunnison, Colorado, starts the January 22nd, 23rd weekend, Augusta, Georgia, Lewiston, Idaho, Pelham, New Hampshire, St. George, Utah, Saturday, January 22nd, is a one-day event on that Saturday, Castro Valley, California, starts the January 29th and 30th weekend, followed by Dulzura, California, Lebanon, Connecticut, Calverton, New York, and El Paso, Texas. It takes us a full month ahead. <clears throat> All right, I've uh, I have a brand new computer. Downloaded every single version of uh, Java you can get, and. Uh, for some reason, the chat still isn't working. Now, I uh, I actually started up a, uh, you know, I did a test show uh, at the end of last week and tried it again. Everything worked fine. And now here we are at uh, the time of the show, and uh, I'm just about giving up on the chat thing here. I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really upset with the... 
the software that's running here. If I don't get it to open, then I just don't. But uh, uh, we won't be doing a lot of uh, discussion anyway. <clears throat> and we'll be doing the uh, second strike of the match in just a few moments. Right now, let me bring uh, on uh, Sam D. Sam, welcome to the show. Evening, Scout. How are you doing this evening? Pretty good, pretty good. How are things in New Mexico going? Real good. Had a nice shoot over the weekend. A little chilly, but we made some riflemen and had some really good youngsters there. Well, that sounds great. We had a good shoot uh, in Smithville. It was a new location for us. Uh, it's a private uh, facility, and uh, I think we had about uh, about 20 shooters there. And with the majority of them, I believe it was close to uh, 15 or 16 of them, uh, being uh, women and children uh, and first-time shooters. And uh, it was uh, probably one of the highest uh, averages of first shooters that uh, that I've run into in a while. And, uh, you know, every Appleseed event is a different one. And uh, this was, of course, uh, uh, holding, holding to the uh, the rule. It was a, a different one, and and went a little bit slower than most. But one of the things that I've that I've learned doing events is throw the, uh, especially when you're doing an event at a new location, and if you have a, a lot of new shooters online, throw the stopwatch away, get rid of it, because. Uh, it's not going to do you any good. And uh, your real goal should be to, number one, you should be teaching safety and uh, teaching these skills and techniques that are required uh, for uh, the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship. But at the same time, you should be making sure that the folks, while they're learning it, that they're having a good time, that they are... Uh, that you're not beating them to death with a stopwatch or pushing or shoving them, and uh, it just it doesn't do any good. So the, this event, as I said, it went a little bit slower, but we still managed to uh, push out one AQT right at dark on Saturday, <clears throat> and then everybody came back the next day, and uh, and we actually cranked out uh, five riflemen out of the group which is also a, a you know a pretty good uh, percentage when you're talking about uh, 25% of your line uh cranking out riflemen one of them being a a brand new shooter so uh if i if i had some advice to give to to new shoot bosses or line bosses on the line is uh is whenever you have a uh, when you're doing a shoot in a new location or you have a lot of uh, first time shooters Get rid of the stopwatch. Don't uh, don't tie yourself to any time limits, etc. Uh, you can look at your shooters on the line. You'll know when when the preparation period needs to be called, or whenever they need uh, to be given more time, etc. You just watch your shooters on the line. They'll let you know how it's how it's supposed to be running, how fast or how slow. <clears throat> how is uh, how is the weather? There in New Mexico. Did I lose you? Gosh, dog it. 
I'm sitting here talking to Sam, and I'm looking right here, and uh, and we we lost him. Uh, no fail. He'll call back in. Let me bring on uh, another caller real quick. Area code seven one three. You're on the air. Let me try this again. Area code seven one three. You're on the air. Can you hear me? I just I hear you. Okay. I just called in to listen. <laughs> All right. Well, you don't have to talk if you don't want to. Uh, well, I let me ask you real quick. Are you a Are you a member of the uh, Appleseed Project? Um, not really. I I've been to one of their uh, uh, little meetings, and I had to get myself in order to go to another one. But uh, it's been a while. Which one did, which one did you go to? Oh gosh, um, 2007. I went to the uh, Appleseed that was right after the Rifleman's Boot Camp in Ramsar. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. In which which month? Oh gosh, I don't remember. Um, I know it was getting cool. Oh okay, all right. It was getting cool. I'm going to say I was at the. Uh, I was at the August uh, boot camp there, and then I taught at the the uh, Appleseed right after right after the event there. Well, you listen, may, I uh, may have been at that one. Um, um, but did you? Yeah. Now, now you, I'm seeing that you got a seven one three number, which means you're in uh, Houston. That's exactly So how did correct. you end up at Ramsher? Well, I kind of wanted to do the boot camp. But my wife had respiratory problems, and uh, I knew that she couldn't take a week camping, and I didn't uh, I didn't have the money to spend on a hotel for the whole time. Right. And so we uh, were going over there to visit some of her uh, relatives and whatnot, and I said, well, you, I'll take you over there on one condition. You'll let me go over here to the uh, to Ramsey, North Carolina, <laughs> and we'll do this rifle shoot thing. <laughs> and she said, that's not like fun. Uh, can you bring my electric scooter? And so I loaded her Camo electric scooter up, her, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 bottles of oxygen and her uh, oxygen concentrator in the back of the truck, and we uh, set sail the Ramser, and after some travail, we got there. Well, what did you uh, think right about at, the event? I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'd like to do it again. Um since then, my wife has passed away. I've had trouble. I've had to change jobs and had some uh, health issues. But uh, I'm I'm almost to the situation where I'm uh, I'm ready to do it again. I just got to get everything poked out and uh, headed in the right direction. And I figure I'll make one over here in Texas sometime or other. Well, please accept my condolences on your wife's passing. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, well. And then let me let me invite you to come here to the to the Devilla location because uh, uh, you'd be welcome here and uh, and you're welcome uh, as soon as you if you will uh, are you on the forum? I have been, yeah. Okay, well yeah, then, not real if you can if there. you shoot me a PM, I'm Scout on the forum. If you shoot me a PM. I'll give. I'll send you a uh, a listing 
of the dates for this coming year, and you can come up here as my guest to the uh, to the event. Okay, I'll be honored. And uh, we'd love uh, to have you up here. Okay. Well, I uh, I've gotten me a, a 1022 set up with the tech sites and uh, a little trigger work done on it, so you don't have to pull the trigger with your big toe. Uh, <laughs> well, that that you know. does help, and the tech sites, of course, are a great uh, they are a great uh, addition to the 1022. <laughs> You're welcome, as I said. You uh, shoot me a PM, and I'll send you the date, and uh, and we'll be glad to have you up here. You can camp up here if you want. It's uh, uh, the next few months are the perfect time of the year for camping. Doesn't require any air conditioning here in Texas this time of the year. No, it it might, but normally it doesn't. So (laughs) just uh, shoot me a PM and let me know. I'm not going to hang up on you, uh, and I may uh, come back to you in just a little while and uh, and uh, ask you a few more questions. Did you have anything else you want to get out or say before you? uh... No, I really I'm I'm interested in the program. Like I said, I've been once. I've recommended several people go. Uh, I don't know that any of them ever have. Uh, Listen, I had a, lot a good of way. One I went to. A good way to make sure is make them come with you. Well, that's true. You see, but I haven't put it together to go, so that kind of precludes that ever happening. Yeah. Well, just round up those same folks that you've been saying they should go and say, "All right, uh, we're going on such and such a date." I already got uh, got your place in the, in my uh, car, my truck uh, reserved, and uh, let's. Uh, Let's uh, tie a ribbon on it and let's get let's do it. I'll see what I can kick up. All right. Well, listen. Like I said, send me a PM so I can uh, respond back to you. And uh, okay, Scout. And you can uh, uh, and you can come up here as my guest. All right. I'm, well, listen. I look forward to seeing you, and uh, I'll get the information as soon as I hear from you. Okay. Thank. You. All right. Sam, I got you back on. Okay. That red coat uh, lady cut me off. Did she? Yep. What'd she say? Nothing. She just chopped the connection. She just chopped it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't hear anything from her. Usually, uh, <laughs> well, I think I asked you uh, what the weather was like. And that's when I looked down and I saw that uh, that you had disappeared. And I know that you're Sam's out. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And when I say nowhere, I mean nowhere, uh, because uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been close to his house out there, and uh, and you can look in all directions as far as you can see, and there's not much to see in in any direction. So I know that uh, we sometimes lose you. What's the weather at uh, in New Mexico at uh, right now? Well, right now it's in the 40s. Uh... Got nice and warm today, sun out, and got a little bit of breeze. It was about uh, 22 when I got up this morning. But uh, it's not bad. Weather for the shoot was okay. Cool and windy, but not at all unbearable. We had a well, good bunch out there. Well, that sounds great. Uh, when is your uh, – well, I don't have to ask. I just read it off. You, you're, you guys have uh, – uh, Let's see, you've got upcoming... 14th and 15th of January is our next one. Okay. The 14th and 15th of January, and that is... uh, See, the 14th and 15th? 
Uh, the 15th and 16th. Or 15th and 16th, yeah. right. Yeah, Alamogordo. Alamogordo, New Mexico. How did the uh, uh, the event at uh, Roswell go? Oh, it went great. It went great. We had uh, we had a couple of youngsters out there, uh, three of them actually, and uh, they were the children of two different city councilmen from there in, in Roswell. And uh, they, they were really good good students they paid attention uh, learned to shoot well and they were great fun and a lady from local newspaper came out and i got her to try a couple of rounds and she enjoyed and i believe she'll be coming to one pretty soon and a councilman came out and tried a couple of rounds and he enjoyed it and we'll have him well i'm gonna look real quick uh, his rifleman on his first go oh really with a with a with a lever gun yet? Uh, you keep talking for a second. I'm going okay. to uh, I'm going to just Google the uh, the uh, television station that came out and see if they have the uh, see if they have broadcast the uh, they've broadcast the coverage that they did on us in November. I Forgot to take a look and see if they've done it. Ah. They uh, we had uh, a news station out at uh, let's see out at Midland. We had one there, and uh, we've had quite a few recently. But uh, the uh, uh, the CBS News said they were going to run the the uh, the coverage that they had put on here. They were going to run it uh, uh, within two or three weeks, and I forgot to I forgot to take a look and see where it's going. I'm going to take a look at that real quick. Let me bring on another caller too, real quick, before we get started with sure. our. Uh, okay. I guess I'm going to have to wait here a second till they. Uh, my computer is refusing to submit to my authority. Uh-huh. All right. Well, I'm waiting for it to uh, to make a decision on what it's going to do. Uh, we'd like to uh, – we're going to get started in just a few minutes with the second strike of the match. We've had uh, the first strike on several times, and uh, uh, we have Ishi at some point. She's going to come on and do the, uh, the three strikes uh, because uh, she's volunteered to do that. And we would like for any of the rest of you guys that would like to uh, get your strikes stories recorded and put on the air, we'd like to do that. If you don't want to do it uh, during a live show, just let me know. We'll set up a special, uh, you know, private uh, uh, recording of the show so it's not done live. It's just done in private, and that way you you can actually uh, go back and listen to it and see if it's uh, if it's okay. If not, we can either edit it or we can re-record it. But we'd like to get several of them up and running. So if you'd like to do that, please PM or email me or give me a call on the telephone, and uh, we'll get you guys scheduled uh, for the three strikes. <clears throat> All right, we've got another caller here we're going to bring on real quick because I don't want folks uh, to have to hang on too long. Area code 507, you're on there. Yes, uh, this is uh, Freedom V from uh, Minnesota, and uh, hi, Scout. We had a uh, great winter seed in La Crosse, Wisconsin, 
It was a balmy 20 to 25 with uh, six inches of fresh powder. Well, that sounds excellent. Did you guys award some of the new patches? Uh, yes, there was uh, five winter seed patches and uh, four at uh, full distance or known distance. And that was my first shoot at a being able to use my uh, 308 with uh, full distance, the so, uh, one, two, three, and 400 yard. Uh, we had four spots and uh, two two relays, and uh, that was really uh, wonderful to uh, be able to do that for the first time. Well, six inches of uh, powder, that's uh, that's almost enough if you have any kind of change in elevation between uh, your shooting position and the target to cause some grief. Was there uh, – did you have to trample any shooting lanes? Um, well, we uh, we certainly made uh, some trample as we uh, went down the hundred hundreds of yards to uh, score targets, and uh, there were a few uh, keyholes from uh, rounds that had uh, skipped uh, on the snow. Bounced, skipped, skipped on the snow, yeah. Right. But uh, <clears throat> it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, we kept. Uh, Got some exercise uh, walking down through the snow and uh, walking back. And uh, well, let me ask you this: Did you find out? Uh, did you find out anything that you didn't know before about your rifle system shooting it in the snow? Absolutely. Uh, the the I, it was. It, I need to uh, drive drive practice more with the uh, mag changes. In the uh, in the backyard when it's cold to get them, or maybe a little. Uh, <laughs> they, they it stuck a little bit. I didn't have I didn't use oil, but maybe uh, just some dry graphite or something uh, get them smoothed up a little bit. Hey, listen, that reminds me too. Uh, yeah, you're going to learn a lot of stuff that you didn't know about uh, uh, about your rifle system shooting it in the snow, uh, about not to drop your magazine uh, in the snow and then jam it into the rifle without uh, yep. clearing it off first, because if you do that, you're going to jam snow into the action and may not strip off that first round. If your rifle is using a, a low temperature, uh, or rather a high temperature grease or oil, then uh, you're going to find out that it may not, not want to cycle like it's supposed to. Uh, so there's a lot of things you're going to find out. Uh, Some uh, good anti-fogging uh, coating <clears throat> on uh, shooting glasses uh, would have been helpful. <laughs> well, I've got uh, – I was at a – because I'm so close to Fort Hood, I go to a lot of the garage sales and stuff in the uh, – and during the, whenever they're having the garage sales, I'll, I'll go out there and look because there's a lot of stuff that, that will come up uh, – uh, you know, well, that that are good deals. I got uh, oh, for one of my buddies, Mark. I he's got an AR system, and I I managed to get him about uh, oh, twelve or fifteen magazines, <clears throat> the twenties, uh, thirties, even a couple of uh, the government contracting forty round mags, all for ten bucks. Uh, and then I came upon a uh, I haven't found out any place to use this yet. I wish I could ship it to you, to you guys up north. I can't. I've got about <laughs> 200 bottles of extreme cold oil for uh, 
for rifles, like 212-ounce uh, bottles or 15-ounce bottles, something like that. There's uh, some way I could get it up there, up to the north, to you guys. I'll try and I'll try and get it up there so that you guys can I'll use it. I'll pay for shipping and uh, distribute it to the uh, Minnesota and Iowa groups. They're just uh, we don't need all of it, but if you wanna, uh, feel free to PM Freedom V with the address or with uh, where to send a, a check for shipping. Okay, all right, because I'll just give it to you guys. You can you pay for shipping and. I'll send at least a case of it up there. I think a case is yeah. 21, 24 cans or something, but it's a military uh, extreme cold oil. <clears throat> so it would be good to have that in your in your kit for those uh, ice cold days. The one other thing I wanted to pass on to everybody is uh, check out the after action report for the uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin uh, apple seed uh, this last uh, December 50, uh, 5th, 4th and 5th. And... Uh, I encourage everybody to uh, uh, go out in uh, whatever the weather the weather is and uh, not let the weather ever stop them from doing things they enjoy. All right. All right. I, and I completely agree. You guys, uh, you guys are already geared up for the cold weather. You already live there. You already survive it. Uh, so you're already geared up for that. Don't let that uh, cold weather stop you because just as he said there's uh there's a lot of things that you're going to find out about shooting in the cold but not just about uh, your rifle system which is very important to find out how it functions if you use a gi grease and that grease freezes and your rifle doesn't cycle uh if you uh, uh if you have trouble changing magazines because they want to uh they want to stick in there or because your hands are frozen when you're making magazine changes etc then uh, there's only one time to do it. There's only one time to find out, and that's when it is cold and snowy. And then also about yourself. How do you function? How do you hold up in the cold? Uh, are you shooting? Are you just uh, yanking the trigger so you can get out of there and get to someplace warm? Or are you putting yourself inside the rifleman's bubble and you're closing everything else out except the shot you're about to take? So there's a lot you're going to find out uh, by going to a winter seed and uh, and the only way you're going to find it out is by going. Well, you got anything else, uh, Freedom? Uh, the only last thing is uh, Moggett says hi. Moggett says hi. Well, I'd like for her to, uh, of course, I can't get my chat in. I'd like for her to uh, to call in. I wouldn't mind if she was uh, would help me with the radio show on a lot of nights. She always has a really good, uh, she's got a very good uh, uh, perspective on things, and uh, so, uh, you know, if she wants to uh, to call in to help out with the show, I'll always appreciate that. So tell her I said hey to, and uh, I look forward to speaking with all of you guys. look forward to seeing you guys if I can uh, get up north. <clears throat> all right, well, listen, don't slow down. Keep running the winter seats hard and fast, and let us know how they're going, all right? We'll try. All right. All right, I'm not going to hang up. I'm just going to close the mic. Take care of okay. yourself. God bless you and yours, and uh, I'll see you on the trail. See you on the trail. All right, got another caller here, 361. Area code 361. Is that you, Pop? That's me, Scout. How you doing this evening? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, fine. been busy. I'm in Shreveport this week, and we, uh, I just tuned in about five minutes ago to the show, so I'm just listening, but 
Hope everybody's doing well. All right. And, well, listen. God bless you and yours. Uh, I talked to you for a long time when we came when we talked the other day. Do they had your? Do they yeah. get your equipment ready? Uh, yeah. Everything's uh, everything's fine. And I got it up here with me now, and uh, so we're going through it all, and and uh, look forward to to uh, I don't have one. Uh, anyway, I'm just listening this evening, and uh-huh. so you go ahead and do your show, and and uh, uh, if, run it like that. All right, brother. I'll call. I'll get. I'll talk to you again before we end the show tonight. Okay. Thank you, Skill. Bye. All right. All right, Sam. You got anything uh, before we get started here? Uh, no, I, I, I'd really like to hear you do that history. All right. Well, I'm going to give the uh, the second strike here, which is one of my favorite parts of the story. Now, the, the whole story. I love. Uh, I love all history. I love all of the history of this time period. I told you guys, uh, I'm sure once or twice before uh, during the radio shows that. <clears throat> Before I got involved with the Appleseed Project, uh, my history uh, – now, I was familiar with, with history, I mean, all the way back in, until, you know, to uh, uh, re- when re- recorded history began. I familiarized myself with it because I have a love of history. But until I got involved with the Appleseed Project, uh, the only history that wasn't absolutely rust-covered uh, was from uh, the Civil War forward. Uh, anything past that, anything past uh, beyond the Civil War, I, I considered uh, too archaic and dusty, and that uh, it didn't have any adventure or anything like that. I, I didn't want to be involved with a bunch of uh, guys in frilly shirts and, uh, uh, and in some cases, uh, you know, tight. Uh, or as they call them, small clothes. Uh, that to me, that was, you know, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't something that I was really that interested in. But the more I learned, once I became a part of the program and started uh, immersing myself in the history of that time period, is how absolutely, uh, how absolutely. Uh, got another call here on a different line. Absolutely amazing uh, the history of that time period is. How uh, how many heroes, uh, how tremendous the heroes are. How uh, how exciting that time period is. So uh, I've done a great deal uh, of reading on the American Revolutionary War period, and then before and after it. <clears throat> So I'm very, uh, I'm always eager to read something new. I even read a book. Uh, I've even occasionally will read uh, historical fiction, and uh, I actually read one the other day from uh, President Carter, Jimmy Carter, a book called The Hornet's Nest. And uh, uh, my wife got it for me. It's kind of a joke because uh, she knows uh, some of my feelings towards some. Of uh, some of the folks in politics, and uh, she thought it would be a, a funny joke to give me a book by President Carter. And uh, and while I respect all of America's presidents, you know there's some that I there's some that I like better than other ones. And uh, so I read, I began reading the book with a bit of apprehension, but 
but it was a it was a fairly decent historic uh, fictional historical novel. My point is <clears throat> that there is there should be uh, you should make time to understand what went on in our nation and why it went on so that you can understand where we are now, what's going on now. Uh, when you have uh, when we have the discussions uh, now on uh, religion and government, when you have the folks who talk about uh, the uh, separation of church and state, of which there, there is not one, but you can understand why some of the things they put in into the uh, the constitution why they're there why did they why did they have mentioned anything about that well it was because uh, nobody wanted to give any of the specific religions an upper hand and they certainly didn't want to be ruled by the church as england was <clears throat> but you can find out why we do the things we do now uh and uh, we've had uh dr hackett fisher on and uh, he has written a good many uh, novels, and he has uh, uh, he has uh, a, a novel that, uh, that addresses that uh, let, me, uh, let me see pull this up real quick. It uh, addresses uh, one of those specific uh, a book that addresses that specifically. And uh, it talks about why we do the things we do, uh, even just uh, uh, even the the trivial, mundane things, uh, uh, such as uh, uh, why we have the uh, why we bury people a certain way, why we have uh, different celebrations, why architecture is a certain way, why we dress a certain way, why we teach our children in a certain way. Uh, and it, uh, uh, the name of the book is Albion's Seed. And it's, uh, it discusses the core aspects of American culture, which stem from four British folkways and regional cultures. And it's very interesting to put this all together. So why do we even, uh, at an Appleseed event, why do we even talk about history? I mean, what what is the point in it? Well, the reason is, without history, how do you know who you are? How do you know what you what you what you have become and why you have become that? What do you know? Why do you? Uh, how do you know what you're going to do? How do you know what's been done before and how it turned out? Without history, you're you're lost. Uh, one of the, the examples I give is if uh, if you came up to me at, at an apple seed event and I said, "Hey, uh, how are you doing? What's your name?" and you said, "Well, my name is uh, I think my first name is John." But uh, I said, "Well, what's your last name?" And you said, "Well, I don't know." I said, "Oh, okay. Well, what about uh, what about your folks? Who are they?" And you said, "Wow, you know." Once again, I really I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who they are. All right. Well, what about uh, where where have you lived? Uh, and you say, well, I don't know. All right. What 
what have you done? What was your occupation? You know, I don't know. And then here comes the big one. What are you going to do next? What's in your future? And the answer is going to be, I don't know. Because how can you or how can you make a decision on what you're going to do if you don't know what you have done? The old adage that those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it uh, is a very good one. Because if you don't know who you are or what you've done or why you've done it, how are you going to know what you're going to do next? And as I said earlier in the show, we need to know what has been done and by who because we owe a debt to those people that got us here. We didn't just pop into uh, December 2010 here in America uh, out of nowhere. We don't have the things we have or do the things we do for no reason. It's because someone who came before us set this in motion. Someone who came before us has handed this off to us. And we have to know what we're going to do because we're in that same position now. We're in the position of the guardians of this nation. And eventually we're going to hand it off to somebody. We're going to hand it off to our our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandchildren. So we're going to hand it off to millions of Americans who we will never meet. And what are we going to give them? What are we going to hand off to them? Is it going to be something better than what we got? Because that's the way things are supposed to happen. I'm sure that you've, uh, your parents or your grandparents, they, I'm sure they've probably told you that, is when, you, when someone gives you custody of something, say you borrow someone's car, you borrow someone's car, and they give you the uh, the uh, the responsibility of that vehicle, and you take that vehicle and you use it, and you bring it back to them. Do you bring it back to them with an empty tank covered in dirt or mud or dust? The insides uh, have with trash on the floor? No. No, at the very minimum, you give it back to them with a full tank of gas after it's been washed and vacuumed and cleaned out. And uh, hopefully, uh, maybe you change the oil, too. You went the extra mile to make sure that whenever you gave it back to them, it was in better condition than when you got it. That's the way things are supposed to happen. That's what we're supposed to be doing. When we hand off this nation, we're supposed to be handing it off in better condition than we got it. At the very minimum, at least in as good a condition as we got it. So history is important. History is very important to us. Now we've had the uh, the first strikes of the match several times. <clears throat> so I'm going to start off with the uh, tonight with the second strike. In the first strike of the match, we've just left the British regulars reassembling on the road outside of Lexington, where they've just met. Uh, the Lexington training band, and they fired on them, uh, killing uh, uh, several and wounding even more. And why was this? Was uh, Did the Lexington militia attack them? 
No. They were just standing there in formation protesting the regulars coming through. <clears throat> so after the, uh, it's hard to call it a battle because uh, it was mainly just the Lexington militia being shot and then uh, the regulars reassembling on the road. They'd been given the uh, uh, the opportunity to uh, fire a victory volley and then give three huzzahs for their heroic actions there at Lexington. And they did so. <clears throat> now, the victory volley also served the the dual purpose of making sure that the muskets that the troops were carrying were going to be carried in a safe condition, which is unloaded. So they were able to discharge them. They could move safely then carrying their uh, their firearms in an unloaded condition. <clears throat> it had a, another uh, act, which was uh, it burned up a, around 800 rounds of ball, which... Uh, which they would be needing in the future. Now, once this had happened, Smith had a a meeting of his officers who were then told what their mission was, which was to go on to Concord to search for and confiscate any materials of warfare there, any firearms, gunpowder, etc. His officers at that time thought it was folly. They said, look what we have done. Look what we have done here, and look at the uh, at the number of uh, men we have seen uh, marching and the distance we've seen them. We've seen all the alarms where this is no longer a surprise. We should be heading back to Boston rather than deeper into the countryside. We've alarmed the countryside. And Smith answered them as uh, a commanding officer, as the only way he can, which is, I have my orders. And he did. He had his orders, and he was going to follow them. So the men were assembled, and they began their march to Concord. And remember that these men were marching, the regulars, even though they'd been marching all night, they had a pace which is approximately one mile every 12 minutes. So they're marching at a rapid rate. Now, the folks in Concord had been alerted earlier in the morning by Samuel Prescott. He'd already alerted them. They'd gathered at Emerson at the minister's place, at Emerson's place, to discuss what they were going to do. And they decided the best to, what we have to do first is we have to alert the uh, the militia and get them together, and we'll discuss what we're going to do. So they did so. <clears throat> and they got the folks together. Now, at Lexington, when the first shots were fired, there were several post riders. Uh, Reuben Brown had been sent to Lexington to find out what was going on by the folks in Concord after they'd been alerted. When he was there, he'd met uh, briefly with Parker uh, on the muster field, and he'd spoken a few words with him, and uh, then he'd pulled off. When the shots were fired, his horse took off and he took off. Well, he got back to Concord to give his report that said, yes, say, the regulars were out, and they were more than probably on the way. Then he was asked by Major Buttrick what he'd witnessed. And he told him that the uh, that the regulars had fired on the men there in Lexington. And Buttrick asked him, were they firing ball? To which Reuben Brown replied, I do not know, but I think it was probable. 
Now, you might find this a strange question to be asked in the first place. Was Were they firing ball? And what that means is, were they firing live rounds? Because you have to remember that when folks think about uh, Lexington, Concord, and uh, Battle Road back to Boston, they think about uh, a great day of warfare, of men uh, uh, fighting in patriotic fervor. And indeed, that was the case in many instances. But at the same time, you have to remember that there was no war. Not only that, there was no, this wasn't uh, England versus the colonists. And I think a lot of times people think about this too, is they think that when they conjure in their mind their visions of Lexington and Concord and Battle Road, then in their mind they're seeing the uh, colonial blues in formation, fighting the British regulars in red, and they, that's what they see, the, the fife and drums and the uh, the Betsy Ross flag and the colonials all uh, uh, lined up in blue. And that's not the case. Uh, the major uh, the major portion of the American Revolutionary War was not fought by colonial troops in uniform. It was fought by the citizens in those regions. And just so, on April 19th, that was the same way it was there. Now, the <clears throat> the question of were they firing ball, because there was not a declared war. So to think that the the regulars, who were British regulars, would not be marching into a town of British citizens and opening up uh, on them with live rounds, that's a reasonable question to ask, because why would they? Under what justification... Uh, could they uh, could they say that firing into the crowds of uh, British citizens uh, was a good thing? And yet, Reuben Brown's reply was, I think it probable. I think that they were. This put a, another serious spin on what they were about to face. It wasn't that the regulars were coming there to uh, uh, to bully or to bluff. They had already been in a town a few miles away, and they had fired upon the citizens with live ammunition. There was no reason the Concord could not expect the same. They gathered them in together, and <clears throat> I think that uh, also a lot of people think that that the when you, you talk of a town's militia, that you have a, uh, a very stratified uh, rank uh, system where you have the, uh, the the colonels and the majors and the captains and the sergeants, and everybody uh, says yes, sir, no, sir, and follows the rules without uh, without any questions. And that's not the case. Because what you're talking about is a town where the militia is made up of the folks who are neighbors, who uh, they're family members, they're neighbors. Now, most of the people in the town are related in some way. And even when those that are not, they're their neighbors. It's no different than... Uh, if uh, if you came to an apple seed, if a bunch of folks were at an apple seed, and uh, uh, and you started uh, giving them orders, and they would say, "Well, by what right are you giving me orders? You know, I'm a free man, and I will do as I please." And that was the way things were handed at the in the discussion in the town of Concord. It wasn't a 
a military meeting where they said, you and you will do such and such. You will do such and such. Here's what they're going to do. I'm the commander, and I say so. Thus it shall be done. It wasn't handled like that. They got together to have a discussion on what should they do. That's the way these things were handled. The, the men were consulted rather than ordered. There was discussion on it. They came to a consensus, and then they did what the consensus was. <clears throat> also, unlike the uh, the militia in Lexington, in Lexington it was the traditional training band where you had all of the uh, all of the ages together. It wasn't broken up into different uh, sections. You had one large group, and it was called the training band. That's the traditional way it had been done. In Concord, it was a bit different. In Concord, you had the minute men, which were the the young men, usually single men, usually from the uh, from the age of 15 or 16 to uh, about their 20s, uh, men who could... Uh, were in the prime of their physical shape. They didn't have a whole lot of uh, responsibilities as far as having a family and stuff. These were the guys who would usually be called out of bed. Uh, they probably were sleeping in their clothes almost, and uh, they would whip on their shoes and grab their musket and ball and their hatchet, and uh, if it was winter, their snowshoes, and they would take off at a run to get to wherever they needed to go. The next group was the militia. This was uh, the more middle age, from say the 20s to the 40s, the men who uh, who had a a bit more uh, responsibility. A lot of them were married with families. They had already proved themselves uh, in the village and proved themselves <clears throat> by uh, holding responsible positions. Then you had the elders. Uh, these were from the 40s to 60s and 70s, and they were in the alarm list. And uh, usually these guys were not they were not called on to to get into ranks and to march somewhere. Uh, you know they were they were older, but they did have more experience. They were usually the folks who were going to stay inside the village and guard it against uh, any uh, uh, any danger, while the Minutemen and the militia were doing their jobs. On their and they could also function as auxiliary troops uh, in defense of the village. <clears throat> Okay, so you have these three groups, and and within these three groups were three different opinions on what should be done about the regulars marching toward Concord. They knew they were coming. They were coming fast. They knew they were going to Concord, and they knew that they had just shot on the men of Lexington. So what were they to do? Well, the young men in the minute companies, they wanted to march eastward and confront the regulars outside of the town. And the way I like to think of this is, uh, uh, you know, when you were a young man, if you can think back to when you were a young man or uh, or if you were a female, I'm sure you've known young men. And uh, I think of these guys as usually as, uh, as a 16 or 17-year-old folks that have never had a really good uh, hiney whipping. They've never had a really good beating. And I'm sure that when you think back... Uh, to your early years, 16 and 17, you consider yourself invincible. There's nothing that can stop you, and there's nothing that you can't do. There's no foe that can't be beaten, not because you have any particular prowess, but because you're young, you're 16, and you are uh, you're invincible. They wanted to go out and stop the British regulars on the road before they got to town. 
the militia members, these were the middle-aged ones, they preferred to wait in the town and defend the town. Uh, if the British indeed did come to Concord, if the British regulars came to Concord, they would defend the town. Now, this is uh, you know this is a good and bad decision because you're not out seeking uh, an active uh, fight, but you're going to engage them when they come into the town, and that has its its own problems. Now, the town elders, the men on the alarm list, thought it was wise to wait while the numbers continued to grow because every minute that passed by brought in new folks from the surrounding towns and villages. <clears throat> when the alarm went out uh, uh, on the 18th and in the early hours of the 19th, when those folks were alerted, uh, many of them, they took off at a run. You have many of the folks who would, uh, they grabbed their gear, they took off as a unit as a run, uh, on a run, and they covered 20 to 25 miles in the hours and they were able to throw themselves into the battle uh, by uh, uh, by afternoon on the 19th. You had folks coming from all around, volunteers who were uh, coming from all around and showing up in town. Every minute that passed by brought an increase in the numbers of folks who were defending Concord. Not only that, but the men on the alarm list, they knew what war brings. They knew what happens in war, that it's an ugly, nasty thing. And the last place you want it is in your town. Remember, there was no, uh, there were no uh, hundreds of Doyle Stuckey homes waiting for people to move into. Every town there had to be built, I mean, every home in that town had to be built by hand. Every board had to be made one board at a time, it taking hours to make one board. If you didn't have a home, uh, and everything you had was in your home, every bit of wealth you had was in your home, your, your family was there, your wife, your children, your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, they were all there in the home. If you got into a fight in the town, if they started to fire that town, you could lose all of that. You could lose all of that. They'd seen war. They'd seen what it could bring. They wanted to pull out of the town. They thought it, at, at least that way, if they could move out of the town, at least the, perhaps the town would be spared. Well, they discussed it for quite a while, and the decision was made because this is how they reached their decisions, was by uh, by discussing it and coming to a consensus. And the consensus at this particular meeting was that all three things would be done. They couldn't come to a decision on this. The Minutemen, who seemed to be spoiling for a fight, took off. <clears throat> they grabbed their fifer and drummer, and they took off, and they headed eastward toward the the advancing British regulars. <clears throat> They'd only gotten uh, about a mile and a half from town when they saw the column approaching. When they did, they set up their own battle line and waited for the British to approach. Now, the regulars, 
remember, the Minutemen were young boys who had never seen battle. They were not professionals by any means. They were young men. Uh, yes, they knew had to uh, use their firearms for hunting and uh, defense if needed be, but there hadn't been a need uh, for many years. All right, and uh, and they were facing the most feared soldiers on the face of the planet, the British regulars. These are the troops that uh, that no one stood in their way. They defeated everyone, and they had for many many years. They uh, they were the keepers of the empire. They were all dressed alike. They were marching in formation as the sun was rising. Uh, you could see them marching along with their muskets. And listen, <clears throat> when you guys think of muskets today, you think of the the brown, patinaed, rusty muskets that you see in museums that uh, that have the uh, they've got that dark brown color uh, from 230 years of of age on them. That's not what these guys saw that morning on April 19th. What they saw is the way they were originally issued. That's with them polished to a uh, a brilliant nickel uh, finish. Not only that, but they had a long, sharpened bayonet on the end, which made these muskets almost seven feet long, shining in the sun. It's not like the old rusty ones that you see. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of times in movies, they can't even use the shiny ones because people won't believe they are real, because all they've ever seen is the rusty ones. So they have to use rusty ones to make it look like they're real. Well, the real ones were shiny, and there were 800-plus of them. So I'm sure it looked like a huge, uh, winding uh, porcupine with glittering steel facing from it. Not only that, but whenever they saw the, uh, the Minutemen arrayed in battle positions waiting for them, they didn't come to a stop and have a discussion. They didn't pull the men and say, oh, whatever shall we do? It appears that there are, are folks who are waiting for us to do battle. What should we do? Should we stop? Should we go around them? Uh, should we perhaps return to town because of this? No, there was none of that. They simply got a new drum beat in the commands by, that were given by the drums, the forward companies began to open outward into battle formation. So it looked like the jaws uh, of a great barracuda opening up, ready to engulf the Minutemen. And I'm sure this was very unnerving to them because, uh, <laughs> because there was no questions. There was no hesitation. The, the column didn't slow down. It simply opened up in order to devour them. And there were many, many, many of them. The Minutemen reconsidered. They remembered the things that uh, that the militia and the alarmless folks had said. And they decided that perhaps the better part of valor would be to return to the town and defend the town there. <clears throat> now, they didn't just uh, take off running pell-mell. They didn't uh, run like scared rabbits. They went ahead and got back in formation. They had their drummer and fifer with them playing, and they marched back into town. Now, the British regulars, regulars were right behind them, uh, not more than a quarter mile separated them at one point. <clears throat> so it was almost as if uh, the two were parading in review. 
Now, as soon as they got back to Concord, there was very quickly there was discussion on what would on what should be done there, and the folks in Concord could see the advancing British regulars, and they knew that their numbers were too few. Their numbers were too few. Also, also they were told they said, "Look, look, it will not do." Even though Emerson was telling his men. Uh, let us stand our ground. If we die, let us die here. They were for making a, sp- uh, making a stand there in town, even though their numbers were so few. But once again, they were told, look, it won't do for us to start the war here. And it's our town, and we can't have the town destroyed. So the decision was made to pull back. <clears throat> so they pulled back. <clears throat> Across the uh, across the North Bridge, and they removed themselves back uh, to the Punctasset Hill. Now, from the North Bridge, now you can't see uh, Punctasset Hill. Uh, there's you know, there are too many trees. You know, people think about uh, that that over the years that we've chopped down all the trees that were here in the United States, and uh, and uh, I'm telling you that almost in, in most cases, it's exactly the opposite. You go to places where there once were no trees, and it's completely filled up with trees. And that's uh, Lexington, Concord, that whole area is like that, where once there were no trees and fields and such, there is now a dense woods. <clears throat> All right, so so they decided that they it would be best for them to retreat to their strength could be equal, at least equal to the enemies. Right now, they only had a few, uh, they only had a small percentage of the enemy's strength. And even though the enemy only numbered uh, 800 to 900, their numbers were much fewer, and it looked, the advancing British regulars looked like there were a great many more. The drums were very close, and they were beating. So they they did uh, take their men, all the way to Punctasset Hill, which was about a mile from the town center. But they could see it. They could overlook it uh, across the open country from the hill. You can't now. But at the time, you could. You couldn't see into the town to see what was going on. But you could see the town. All right? And Smith, Colonel Smith, led the regulars into the into the undefended town, which is they made a good decision. Because the, as I said, the town was filled up with women and children in their homes, etc. If you're going to have a, a battle, the last place you want it is right there in your house, where your home, your children, your your family members are going to be killed, even if it's uh, only by accident, even if it's only collateral damage. Better to get out of there, and they did. And it was a wise move because the longer they waited, the more their numbers were growing. <clears throat> now the the troops, Smith's orders, were not to molest the town. He was not to go in there and pillage and burn. He was in there for a very specific reason, and that was to find the materials of warfare. And Gage had a list, a house-to-house list, of who had what, how much, where, uh, etc., from a spy in Concord. So the men began to search the houses there. <clears throat> now, if you read about this, you'll see the way it's described is they began to search the houses without warrant. 
all right, without warrant. Why do you think that's in our Constitution? Why do we think we have uh, uh, constraints against unreasonable searches and seizures? It was because of these exact type of things. They were going to houses, banging on the doors, forcing open the doors, uh, sometimes at gunpoint, and demanding to go through there and look and see if they could find anything. Now, at that time, you couldn't do that. You couldn't just go to someone's house and, and say, listen, we've heard there was a pig stolen. We're going to come look through your house and see if there's a pig, if there's a pig in here uh, and see if you stole it. There, you'd, be, you'd be out of your mind, even if you were the local constable, to try something like that. It just wasn't done, and yet they're doing it here. They're breaking open the doors, uh, searching for uh, materials of warfare. <clears throat> they went to the uh, they went to the town center, and they went to the the inn there, and they banged on the door. And the owner there uh, decided not to open it, uh, and that didn't stop them. The grenadiers broke it down. Pitcairn rushed inside, started yelling at the guy, put a pistol to his head, and said, "Look, you're." I'm not asking you where the stuff is. I'm telling you to take me to where it is or I'm going to kill you. So the inn owner didn't have much of a choice, either to uh, reveal the location of the buried cannon or to die. And uh, discretion being the better part of valor, I'm sure that he figured, we can get more, I can get some more cannons. I can't, I can't get another head. He took them to where the uh, the three, uh, these were large, 24-pound cannons. The three 24-pound uh, cannons were buried, and they dug them up, and uh, uh, they went next door. They uh, freed a Tory who had been arrested and put in jail, and they let him go. Now, Pitcairn did, after he after he'd forced the guy to show him where the cannon was, he did offer to buy breakfast for his guys, <clears throat> But apart from the three cannon, there wasn't much there. I mean, they they had gone through the town, and they didn't find much. Now, we know that over uh, almost ten days before, Revere had already told them that they're coming. They're coming to your town specifically for this stuff. And they'd had chances to get all of the material spread out among the villages and hidden. So there wasn't much there. Now, they did find... Uh, some trenchers and wooden spoons and some gun carriages. And uh, and they took them to the, the town center and and piled them up in a big pile in a big pile so they could burn them. Now once again, <clears throat> this is someone coming to your town saying, uh, look, this is uh this is too many spoons for you to have, so we think that you have bad uh intentions with these spoons, so we're taking them. And we're going to destroy them because we can do that, because we have firearms and you don't. So they took the the trencher. The trencher was mainly it's just a, it's like a board that has a depression carved in the center of it so that the juice from the stew and the meats and stuff doesn't run off the edge. It's a, basically just a, a, a rough-hewn plate. They took the spoons and the and the plates and the gun carriages and took them to the town center and and set them on fire. <clears throat> and uh, one last thing that they did was they chopped down the liberty pole. And this wasn't part of their orders. It was just a slap in the face to the town folks. They said, look, this is your liberty pole. We're going to chop it down because we're sick and tired of all this yakking about liberty. All these, uh, all you guys talking about liberty and freedom and stuff like that, that's, that's done with, all right? It's, it's over. 
And to prove that, we're going to burn the Liberty Pole. <clears throat> they also found a, a cache of lead bullets, and these were thrown into the pond there because uh, what are you going to do with the, the lead bullets? Where are you, you know, they're big, heavy, and you really can't destroy them. Uh, so what are you going to do? They just they threw them into the mill pond, and, of course, the next day they sent some guys in there to to recover them. The three cannons that they found, they took axes and chopped off the uh, trunnions. The trunnion is a part of the cannon that allows it to be mounted in the gun carriage without something to hold it. If there's no way to hold the cannon, it's really of no use because it's if you're not able to aim it and uh, you're not able to fire it more than once because if you fire it that first time without any way of holding it, it just goes shooting off in the opposite direction from the from the uh, shot. <clears throat> so they hammered off the trunnions on the three iron guns they found. They threw the the bullets into the mill pond, and they set the trenchers and the spoons and the gun carriages on fire, along with the the liberty pole that they chopped down. Now, at the same time, Smith had sent seven companies of men out north uh, to the North Bridge. One company he sent to the South Bridge to hold it. Seven companies were sent to the North Bridge, and of those seven, Four were sent onto the Barrett farm because they'd been told that uh, a great deal of supplies were were being uh, stored there. So they sent they had three companies that were going to hold the North Bridge and four companies that went onto the Barrett farm. They went out to the farm and they searched it. Now, as I said, they'd had time. Uh, they'd been informed of exactly who was coming and and what they were going to be looking for. So they had they had taken all their supplies and moved them out and hid them. Now, they did have uh, a good supply of muskets, of the any of the, the uh, surplus muskets they had. Colonel Barrett's sons had plowed furrows in the field. It was planting time, so it would not be unexpected for the fields to be planted. He plowed furrows in the field, then they laid the muskets in the furrows, and then back plowed and turned the soil back over them. So the four companies that went out to Barrett's found really nothing. And uh, and they continued their search, but they were finding really nothing. Now, at the same time, <clears throat> as I told you, the other three companies was holding the North Bridge for their retreat. Now, they could see into the town of Concord. They couldn't see what was going on, but they could see the town from a mile away. They began to see smoke rise from the town, and that was the thing they dreaded most. They had pulled out of the town to keep them from firing the town, and now smoke was coming from the town. What were they to do? The very thing that they were trying to avoid was happening. I'm sure they were looking back to the town and thinking, my family's there, my children, my wife are there. What, what are we going to do? At the same time, men had been arriving. A great number of men had been arriving during this time at a very fast rate. <clears throat> there were parts of two New England regiments who are now in the field. Uh, Major John Buttrick was leading the, the local regiment of the Middlesex Minutemen, of which they now had five full companies. Now, there were also units from Acton, Bedford, Lincoln, two units from Concord, also men arriving from Carlisle, Chelmsford, Groton, Littleford, Snow, Westford, west and north of Concord. Altogether now, they had around 500 armed men in the field. 
Colonel Barrett was in charge. He was looking at the smoke coming from the center of town. About the same time, there was a lieutenant with the the Concord militiamen. He turned to Colonel Barrett and said, Will you let them burn down the town? I told you, this was the worst possible thing that could happen. They had pulled out specifically so there wouldn't be any damage to the town. And now a junior officer had turned to Colonel Barrett in front of his unit, in front of all the men, and said, will you let them burn down the town? Now, in a modern military unit, this would be this would be a, enough to have you uh, uh, have you put in the brig. But this wasn't a modern military unit. These were towns folks, town members. They, they were all members of that town. None of them wanted to see it burned. But who was going to do something about it? Who will do it? <clears throat> they had moved south. Uh, when they were consulting right around this time, they decided to go ahead and move again and to move a bit closer to the town. This was right before they saw the smoke. They marched about 1,000 yards from Punk Tassett Hill uh, to their muster field. It was a flat hilltop. That was about 300 yards northwest of the bridge. Now, there had been a company of the British Light Infantry, which had been occupying this part of the high ground. But as soon as the militia advanced, the, retri- the regulars retreated down the hill toward the bridge. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> something had to be done. Once they saw the smoke, something had to be done. But, but how? Who was going to do it? Who was going to lead this? Because there's a good chance that whoever was leading this was going to uh, was going to take the brunt uh, of the fight there with the British regulars at the North Bridge. About that time, Captain Isaac Davis of Acton stepped up. He drew his sword and he said, "I am not a man who is afraid to go." And he actually had more than that. Uh, captain Davis was the uh, captain of the Acton militia. <clears throat> And he was also a uh, blacksmith and a tinker. He had had his men meeting on a regular basis to practice their firearms marksmanship. And on top of that, he'd, uh, in his blacksmith shop, he had forged them bayonets. So his men were some of the few men at that time who had bayonets because what would they do with a bayonet? Remember, these aren't soldiers. These are townspeople. They're farmers, uh, cabinet makers, uh, lumbermen, sheep herders, clothers. What would you do with the bayonet? You can't can't go out and and force a, a rabbit into the pot with a bayonet. You have to hit it. You have to shoot it, and you have to hit it. So they had no real use of bayonets. And yet, Isaac Davis uh, had the foresight. Once the the training, the militia system had been reactivated about uh, a year and a half previously, he had forged bayonets for his men, and he'd gone a step farther. He'd actually made all of his men cartridge boxes. Now, this this may not sound like much, but it means a great deal. For an ordinary person out uh, hunting, you have your musket, and you may have a bag that has a few uh, extra flints in it, and then your balls. And then you have uh, usually a horn to carry your powder. So 
So in order to make a shot, <clears throat> you would pour, uh, you know, what seemed to you to be the right amount of powder into the bore, and then you would get a ball and force it down, or you would get uh, uh, some, well, some straw or some paper or a cloth patch first, and then push the ball down on top of that, and then you would open the frizzin and pour a little bit more uh, powder from your horn into the frizzin, and then you would close that, and you would be about ready to fire. This took a great deal of time. Now, the way they had to speed this up was they took cartridges and pre-made them. You took a piece of paper, and you poured out the correct amount of powder into the paper. Then you put the ball there, and you rolled it up very neatly, and you tied it with a string, and then that was stuck into the cartridge boxes. And you had anywhere from 9 to 15 to 20 of these where they had holes drilled in a, in a piece of wood, and you could slide the cartridge in there. That made reloading uh, much, much faster because all you did then was you took a cartridge out, you tore the very end of it off, sometimes with your teeth, put a little in the frizzin, closed that, poured the rest into the barrel, uh, put the paper in that was holding it as your patch, shoved the ball down, and you were ready to go. That made it a lot faster on your follow-up shots. Now, his men had this. So they had firearms, they had marksmanship training, they had bayonets, and they had cartridge boxes so that they could fire at a faster rate, making his men the most logical choice to lead this, and they did. Isaac Davis headed up his men. They began marching towards the <clears throat> towards the North Bridge. <clears throat> now... <clears throat> One of the other things I want to tell you is that the the British regulars were not uh, what they were beginning to see when they saw the the conquered men marching toward them was not what they had expected. They were expecting uh, uh, maybe a uh, a loose group of folks with uh, maybe some muskets and some axes and and pitchforks or something like that. Some people that would protest or, or yell or something like that, but not what they were getting ready to see. What they saw when the men were given the order to advance, where well, they saw the men moving forward from their right in double file in uh, and with, it's not a combat formation, but it was in a very military manner. And you see reports uh, from many of the soldiers who were there, many of the British regulars saying they began to move they began to move on us in a very military fashion. This isn't what they were expecting. They may have been expecting a, a bit of protest. Uh, from the the townspeople, but not for them to be moving in such great numbers and in such a military fashion. This was certainly uh, certainly very uh, uh, causing them a great bit of anxiety. <clears throat> now, also uh, as the as the men, uh, they, as I said, they were about 300 yards from the from the North Bridge as they started moving down towards. The North Bridge. The company, the company that was across on the other end of the bridge, they were coming back across. As they did, they started trying to pull up 
the planks on the bridge so that the colonists couldn't get to them. Now, Major Buttrick, that was actually the bridge that he had helped build. He was standing there on his own land watching them pull up the bridge that he had helped build, and he yelled at them to stop. That was their bridge, and for them not to tear it up. And then he turned to his men, and once again, remember what I said, this wasn't, this wasn't uh, a, uh, a military commander. Achilles, come. This wasn't a military commander uh, telling his men what they had to do, what they were about to do, what they, they had to do, and they didn't have any choice. He turned to his men, and he said, if they were of the same mind as he, he would not allow the bridge to be torn up. And they all looked kind of looked at each other, and they said, "Oh, yes, we're we're all of the same mind." So they decided that they would not let them tear up the bridge. <clears throat> so the two regiments moved down the hill in a long column, <clears throat> and uh, the British regulars, the company that was across the bridge, ran back into formation with the other two companies that were on the other side of the bridge and this caused a bit of a uh caused a bit of a jam because if you've ever been to the North Bridge in Concord you'll see that <clears throat> the path to come down to the bridge it uh it had to be they had to dig uh, a good bit of it out and then I'm sure over the years uh, it got worn down so what you're in, what you end up with is you're standing in uh, on a path that's maybe 20, 25 feet wide, but there are high walls and embankments on each side of you. <clears throat> so these troops were pushed back, uh, tied up against each other, and then they were ordered to form up into street fighting, uh, into a street fighting uh, uh, positions. Now this was uh, this was a bit of an archaic formation, and it was designed to do exactly what it says to 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 be able to present the most amount of firepower in enclosed places when folks when they were fighting in towns or uh, or villages. This would allow the front ranks to kneel, the second rank to take a step to the left, and the third rank to take a step to the right, and then all three would fire. Once they had fired, they would peel off and move to the back of the formation. <clears throat> Which is good, but it only allows a minimal amount of firepower at one time. Not only that, but they had no defense on their flanks. They were they were jammed together in this column. Uh, only the fir- only the, the the front few folks had the ability to fire. Now the colonists, on the other hand, it had a completely different situation. They had their 500 plus men arranged. As the top of the T, in the letter T, this is uh, uh, in a in a naval battle. This would be called crossing the T, and you want to be the formation crossing the T because that allows all of your troops, all of your ships, to fire on the ships that you're shooting at without them being able to return fire in any great volume. All of your all of your ships, all of your troops can fire at them, but they cannot fire back at you. And that was what happened here on this. As they moved down, <coughs> as they moved down toward <coughs> the the bridge, 
there were a couple of shots fired into, uh, I believe they were just fired into the water. One or two of the men fired into into the water. And I'm sure, once again, the the British officers uh, were looking at their, their men trying to determine who fired. And then all of a sudden, the front ranks, as the militia uh, approached the bridge, the front ranks uh, fired a shot off. And uh, it was one or two shots. And then several of the other, several of the other troops began to fire off just as they had at Lexington. They fired off a ragged volley. Now, uh, I'm sure that you've, uh, I'm sure that uh, if you've heard the three strikes of the match story, you've heard that that the the British regulars at the time did not even have an aim command in their uh, in their arms. They had uh, present and fire. And one of the things that happened when they did this was, uh, you know, whenever you fire a flintlock musket, you have a, uh, a large explosion right close to your face. Uh, if you keep your face there, it's a good chance that you'll end up uh, with a, uh, if you're right-handed, with a good part of your the right side of your face uh, at least covered with black smudge, if not actually burned. And these guys had on uh, expensive wigs and hats. So a great deal of time they would present, and when the order to fire came, they would turn their heads away. Now, when you turn your heads away, it causes the barrel of the musket to elevate so they fired their volley and it went high as green troops tend to do now most of the volley passed harmlessly over the heads of the the troops of the colonial uh, militia that was appearing there at the bridge but not all of it did remember I told you about Isaac Davis he was willing to lead his, his troops from the front and he did and he also uh, received a musket shot into his heart. He was killed instantly, along with uh, along with another of the uh, the militia privates. <clears throat> there were several wounded, and yet they came on steadily. Uh, they didn't take off running. They didn't immediately uh, start shooting uh, without any orders. They kept on marching steadily. This had to be unnerving to the British regulars as well. Look, we're shooting at these guys. They're not taking off running. They're continuing to march straight at us. They received the full volley. As soon as they were uh, approximately 50 yards from the bridge, Major Buttrick turned to all the men in formation and said, Fire, men, fire. Uh, For God's sake, fire as fast as you can. And the cry was taken up by the men and passed on down the line, and they all began to fire almost as one. And as I said, you had you had a group of hundreds of the colonial militia who were able to take aim uh, at the soldiers across the other side of the bridge. And the British regulars, however, could not. Uh, they were jammed tight against their fellow soldiers, and they couldn't really get a shot because they were all facing them in column formation. They took several rounds with... Uh, 
with the Americans, as I said, uh, aiming because they didn't. They were not used to using their bayonet as their main weapon. Uh, they were used to, uh, like I said, you couldn't, you can't bluff a rabbit or a squirrel in a pot. You have to hit it. I mean, you have to know how to uh, use your firearm, how to be proficient in marksmanship with it, and they were. The Americans aimed carefully and they fired low. <clears throat> now, of the eight British officers, at, officers who were there at the North Bridge, four were hit in the first volley of American fire, and at least three privates were killed there and nine men wounded. This is in the first fire. The colonials continued to fire into them, and the regulars found themselves, uh, they, they, they were stuck in a, in a trap. They didn't know what to do. It's said that a shutter went back and forth through the ranks, and then they took off. They took off in a mad dash to retreat, leaving their wounded there. Uh, some of the guys who had been shot in the, the legs or wounded were were trying to hobble away as fast as they could, but they took off running. Now, this is something that had not been seen before. You had not ever seen a trained force of British regulars uh, who had been routed by a militia. It just had not been seen, and yet here it was. These were all light infantry, and they took off running as fast as they could back to the center of the town. They let no, they let Colonel Smith know what had happened. He gathered up his men and the Grenadiers, and he was making a beeline back to the North Bridge. At the same time, uh, the troops, the four companies that were at Barrett's Farm, they heard the shooting, and they decided they had to get back quick too because there were only three companies holding the bridge open at the North Bridge, and they needed to get back across the bridge while it was being held open. With their, with them only being four companies, approximately 60 men to a company, uh, they they would be vastly outnumbered by the group of colonial militia they had seen when they left. <clears throat> so they're making they're trying to make it back as fast as they could too. <clears throat> now <clears throat> Smith. He's racing to the North Bridge. Now, at the North Bridge, once the shooting had happened, there was a bit of confusion because they weren't sure what to do. These were men who had been trained to defend their towns and their villages. They'd been trained to defend from an attack. They were not trained to exploit a, a victory. If the, if the Indians came and attacked your village, then you repelled them. But you didn't immediately uh, jump on your horses and take off after them and try to uh, to destroy them. Those are the tactics of a, of a professional army, not of hometown uh, folks and villagers. So they were a bit of a loss at what to do. Uh, some of the men pursued. Uh, some of them, uh, some of them, quite honestly, were sickened by what just happened. I told you these were not colonial soldiers. Uh, in blue, fighting patriotically under the stars and stripes. These were townspeople who were not soldiers. They were just, they were civilians. A great many of them, when they'd seen the killing, when they'd seen the bloodshed, they said that was it. That was it for them. It sickened them. 
several of them left. They wanted no more of this. They wanted no more violence, no more bloodshed. It took a few minutes, but the militia were rounded up. Uh, Approximately uh, 200-plus men were sent across the bridge to the high ground there behind a stone wall. The other guys pulled back to the the training hill, which was about 300 300 yards from the north bridge, and took up their positions there. When uh, Smith's men got to within 200 yards of the of the North Bridge, I'm sure what they expected to see uh, was maybe chaos, uh, or maybe uh, see the that the militia had uh, shot at them and taken off running, uh, or that they were milling about, confused, uh, unsure of what to do. Instead, he saw over 200 of them armed and taking uh, taking positions behind a stone wall. He did what any prudent commander at that time would have done. Uh, he stopped his men out of uh, out of musket shot from them to find out to figure out what to do. Now remember, he this wasn't uh, wasn't him just coming up on them uh, without anything previous going on. He's coming up on them because he just had three companies of his light infantry. The, the most professional infantry on the face of the earth had three companies of them who were forced to run from the North Bridge, forced to retreat at a run from these men. He had to regroup. He had to think of what to do. He knew that he had the four companies that were still, uh, that were still further west and that they had to come back across the North Bridge. And about that time, those four companies came back through now, if you go to the North Bridge at Concord, and you listen to the park rangers there, they'll tell you that those four, four companies were able to come back across the bridge because the colonial uh, militia was milling about, wandering about, confused, and not knowing what to do. Uh, and I, I actually, uh, I actually spoke to them about this because I said this—that's not what happened. What happened was they were in their positions, but they were following their orders. Their orders were do not fire unless fired upon. Remember, they were not at war. They were not at war. There was no war. They were defending their homes. They were defending their rights. There was no war. They were not to fire unless fired upon. And so far, at both locations, at Lexington and Concord, they had obeyed those orders to the T. If they had fired first on the British regulars, they would become rebels. And they should be hunted down. They should be hanged for treason. But they didn't. They stood there as British citizens protesting, and they were fired upon first. The four units, the four companies of British light infantry were allowed to return across the bridge because they did not fire. They came back across the bridge. They linked back up with Colonel Smith. Now, it's said that uh, a great deal of time was lost there by Smith, and I'm sure it's because I'm sure that he, he was in a quandary. What should he do? He was sent there under specific orders to seek out and find weapons materials of warfare and to destroy them. 
He'd done that. Now, he had also been engaged in battle, and it had not fared well for him. So his orders were not to continue to to fight and kill colonists. He had actually already fulfilled his, his orders. But I'm sure at the same time, it was very hard for him to march in the other direction from them. And yet I'm sure he knew, too, that every minute he waited there, the colonists' numbers increased while his numbers remained the same, or even some of them even uh, perish. Finally, the decision was made for them to return to Boston. He got his men into column, and they began marching, marching out of Concord to return to Boston. <clears throat> now, he sent a unit of flankers up on Arrowhead Ridge. Arrowhead Ridge ran about a mile uh, from Concord out to Merm's Corner, and uh, he didn't want the colonists uh, to get the high ground up on his flanks, so he sent uh, uh, some Marines and light infantry to hold his flank uh, on Arrowhead Ridge, and they did. <clears throat> so, This is the second strike of the match. And why is it the second strike instead of when the American Revolutionary War began? And here's why. At Lexington, they had fired on the assembled on uh, the assembled militia that was there uh, on Lexington Green. And they'd killed several of them and wounded several others. But that didn't necessarily start a war. Just a few years back, they'd done the same thing right in the town of Boston. They'd killed several folks there. There was no war started from it. There was a great deal of, uh, of controversy. There was a trial. Finally, things were worked out, <clears throat> and things uh, kind of went back to normal. The same thing probably would have happened at Lexington. Then you have Concord. At Concord... Uh, the British regulars, uh, they fired on the American colonists there, but they had their hats handed to them. They got severely tromped there. This would have balanced out the events at Concord. So uh, had Smith's men been able to get back to Concord, I mean back to Boston, without any further uh, engagement with the colonials, then there may not have been an American Revolutionary War that started on this date. It was very hard to see that it would not happen ever because the two sides, had they were at an impasse. But it very likely would not have happened on this date. <clears throat> so that's the second strike of the match. <clears throat> All right, uh, we've got a few minutes left. We've got about uh, nine minutes left. We'll take uh, we'll take some of the calls here. <clears throat> I apologize for my for my voice. Um, yesterday and today, I've been about as sick as you can get, and uh, I considered canceling the the radio show, uh, but. But it's actually our two-year anniversary tonight, so I hated to cancel it on that. <clears throat> uh, 
Let's take uh, let's take some callers. <clears throat> Area code nine four one. You're on the air. We're here. Hey, how, how you doing? Good. Who is it? Uh, this is Mike and uh, Ann in Wichita. Oh, hey, how are you doing? You guys, uh, oh, you should have been to your event by now, right? Uh, yes, we had it this last weekend, and it uh, went quite well. How would you do? Uh, now, this is, well, now, think carefully before you answer, because this is going to be uh, a direct uh, comment on your wife's instructing abilities. Uh, she's now she's just loving that. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I'm, <laughs> I have to say that uh, you know her instruct her instruction definitely uh, definitely helped. Uh, it was my first event. Uh, my of course my first winter seed also, but uh, uh, we had we had a nice uh, constant wind from the from the north. We were was at our backs at the, the the whole time so it was uh, wasn't too too bad as far as windage goes or anything but it was it was consistently cold and uh we had we had six shooters um i don't think any of them had previously qualified some of them had been to events before uh but i was i was very impressed with the uh with the instructors uh, very uh, adamant towards safety, and uh, and you know g- going by the by the numbers, and I learned a lot. I, I really did learn a lot. I had a great. I don't time. think people. I don't think a lot of people understand that uh, that the one of the great benefits that we provide at a uh, an apple seed uh, two day weekend clinic is the foundation that we give for safety, for, for rifle safety. Uh, I mean, we we constantly uh, drill the folks there uh, throughout the weekend on it so that when you leave, you have a very, uh, a very good understanding and a very, uh, a very solid foundation of rifle safety. If, if nothing else, if you get nothing else out of an event, then that's one of the things that I think you can be guaranteed uh, to take away with you. What did you... What did you learn about shooting in the cold other than shooting the cold is is uh is cold? Well, I did uh find out that my rifle uh is a rifle, not a gun. That doesn't have anything to do with the cold, but uh I did notice that my uh my res- my bolt wasn't uh going all the way forward all the time. It was a little sluggish, but uh more than that uh this our selection of ammunition was uh not the best uh, we do, we do have a couple types of ammunition and i, I did find out that the the one type that we brought the majority of uh we needed to use that for practice and then uh, we switched over to another type which was a little a little more reliable uh for the AQT and it made a difference because i had a lot of misfires because what, were you, what were you shooting? And listen, I'm going to bring uh, everybody else back on the line with us, too, everybody else that had called in. So uh, all you guys' mics are open now. Uh, what were you shooting? What What brand of ammunition? No, what uh, rifle system? Oh, it's uh, I, I have a Remington. Um, 
22, a semi-automatic, a 597, and my wife shoots a uh, a Ruger 1022. Okay. Yeah, one of the things that, that you will find, and this is with any rifle, not just not just the, any of the 22s, any rifle. That's one of the things you should be you should be checking when you go to an event. Take several types of ammunition with you, because you will find that every single rifle has its own favorite that it will use, especially uh, the 22s. You'll find that uh, some uh, that some particular brand is going to work better than another for your rifle. And it's not going to be the same a lot of times that uh, that your neighbor. He may have a Ruger 10-22 and you have a Ruger 10-22, and they're not going to like exactly the same type. Uh, I'm saying they, that could be the situation. So make sure that you take several types of ammunition and you try it to, to find out which one works better for your rifle. Absolutely, and I'm not plugging any kind of... Uh or, or slamming on anything, I, it just some some uh, seem to perform better than others in, in different situations. But uh, okay. Area <laughs> uh, code. Let me bring another a person on the line. What is area code two o five? You're on the air. <coughs> Two zero five eight two four. Ah, yes, I'm here. Okay, who's this? Uh, this is Mark. I'm just here uh, listening, actually. All right, all right. Well, yeah. Mike, uh, how did you Talk. do? Uh, I uh, I did. Uh, and listen, don't worry about I, don't worry about any score. I'll tell you, my first AQT was uh, an eighty four. So I did a lot better than I had anticipated. I I uh, ended up uh, getting a uh, 208. 208. Well, you're right there yes. then. Well, I'm sure that uh, I mentioned this before, but the way for any person, uh, any person to become proficient, if you want to make sure that you do better at your next time at the range, whether it's AQT or anything else, it's going to be by dry firing, by getting down into the into the different positions and, and practicing by dry firing. So make sure that you do that. I'm glad that you uh, you had your, your first event. And listen, uh, you guys probably all heard the, uh, the British lady just then. Uh, all of you guys on the phone, she just said 90 seconds. That means that we've got about 60 seconds now. I want to tell everybody uh, thank you, all you guys that called in. Thanks, and thanks to everybody that was listening. I uh, appreciate that. Sam, thank you uh, for always being there. Well, thank and, you uh, for being here, Scout. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the uh, second strike. This is, our, like I said, this is our our second year of being on the air now, and uh, we'll see everybody again this next uh, Tuesday at the uh, 7 p.m. Central Time. God bless you all, and, uh, and everybody have a good week, and we'll see you on the trail.